This month we've been talking about the resurrection. And we've been talking about the fact that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. It doesn't just change Sundays. It doesn't just change us religiously. It changes everything. It changes the way we think about life. It changes the way that we think about death. It changes the way that we treat our spouse and the way we parent our children. It changes what our goals are, what our aspirations are. It changes how we look at ourselves in the mirror. And we talked the first week about why that might cause some people to be skeptical. I mean, it's a pretty audacious claim, isn't it? That we're saying that not only did someone die and come back from the dead, but also that that event is something that they ought to pay attention to. That if the resurrection of Jesus is true, then everybody in the world should become a follower of Jesus. We're saying that the resurrection proves that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father except through Him. And so it makes sense that some people would doubt that, right? It makes sense that some people would say, hey, I don't know about this whole resurrection thing. And so we talked in week one why you should believe in the resurrection, how we know he lives. And yes, we know he lives because he lives in our heart, but there's even more evidence than that, isn't there? We talked about the fact that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11, why you should believe in the resurrection. Because Peter saw the resurrected Jesus, and the apostles saw the resurrected Jesus, that hundreds of people that were living during the time of Paul writing this letter, that they were alive, hundreds of people, that you could go and ask, is Jesus alive? They could say, yes, I saw him with my own two eyes. Some of them could say, I touched him with my own two hands. He lives. We know he lives. And Paul says, and one of the greatest evidences is that he himself, Paul, had seen Jesus, a man who had devoted his life to extinguishing Christianity, who saw it as a heretic sect of Judaism and wanted to stomp it out, saw the resurrected Jesus and said, there's no doubt that he's the Messiah, the son of the living God, and I'm going to devote everything I am and everything I have to following him and proclaiming his name to the world. So there's so many reasons to overcome our doubts that we may have. But you know, I got to thinking about that, and I thought, you know, there's a lot of people that struggle with and have doubts about the existence of God and the resurrected Jesus. But most of us, that's probably not what we doubt and what we struggle with. We believe in God. We have no problem accepting that. That makes sense to us. For most of us, it makes sense to us that Jesus lived and that he died and was buried and rose from the dead. And we have no problem accepting that because we've believed that our whole lives. And so those aren't where our doubts lie. Our doubts really revolve around ourselves. Because we wonder, don't we? How could a God that's that good, a God that's that holy, a God that's that righteous, how could he accept me? How could he love me? And the doubts and the fears and the anxieties that run through our minds, the the accusations that we whisper to ourselves in our head that sound something like this, God could never love a person like you. 
Don't you know what you've done? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. You call yourself a Christian. You don't even deserve to sit here. Those are our doubts, aren't they? Those are our fears. Those are our anxieties. And so this morning, we've got to ask ourselves, how do we address our guilt and our shame? How do we address our sin? Because I would, I would suggest to you that that's one of the most important questions that a person could possibly ask themselves. How do I address my guilt? How do I address my shame? If you address it wrongly, if you address your guilt and your shame in the wrong way, it's going to affect every possible part of your life. It's going to affect how you treat your spouse. It's going to, it's going to affect how you treat your children, how you work, act at work, how you do everything that you do. If you address the issue of your guilt in the wrong way, but if you address it rightly, it's going to affect everything in your life in a positive way. And, and here's how we do it sometimes, isn't it? Some of us address our guilt and our shame like this. We compare ourselves to other people. And we say, well, maybe God accepts me because I'm more religious than other people. Or maybe God accepts me because I'm more moral than other people. And so we compare ourselves to other people. We say, well, at least I'm not that guy. Or at least I'm not her. Or at least I don't do that. And so because I'm better than them, maybe I'm acceptable to God. And I was listening to somebody this week talk about reality television. And they said, you know, when reality TV first started, you watched it to be inspired, right? And you thought, wow, if that guy could lose that much weight, maybe I can do that too. Or if, if that person could start their own business, maybe I can start my own business. And so you watch these inspiring stories and wanted to be like them. And now we just watch it to feel better about ourselves and say, well, at least I'm not like that. You know, at least I don't have those problems. At least I don't do those things. It's how we deal with ourselves, isn't it? It's how we deal with our guilt and our shame. How we deal religiously and wonder if we can be acceptable to God by comparing ourselves to other people. Or, another way we tend to deal with it is we just avoid conversations about sin altogether. We avoid situations where we might be convicted, where we might feel judged, where we might feel accused, where we might feel condemned. And so tends to be sometimes we avoid church people, don't we? Because church people remind us of the things we're guilty of. And sometimes those preachers have the audacity to preach about sin and it makes us feel guilty. And so we tend to avoid that, don't we? Because if we don't know how to deal with our guilt and our shame, we're either going to deal with it by comparing ourselves to other people, which is wrong, or we're going to deal with it by just avoiding any discussion of sin whatsoever, especially sin that touches on things that we've done and that we're guilty of. Because when you hear someone say those sins that you've done, that you've committed, it drives a stake through your heart, doesn't it? It convicts you and reminds you, how do you deal with that guilt and that shame? This morning, we're obviously going to talk about the resurrection. That's what our series is all about. We're going to talk about how does the resurrection address our guilt and our shame? How does the resurrection deal with the issue of forgiveness? Because from this point forward, I want all of us to be able to walk out of here and say no more. No more am I going to deal with my guilt by comparing myself to other people. 
No more am I going to say I'm accepted by God because I don't do what they do out there. No more are we going to deal with our guilt and our shame either by running away and hiding and avoiding the discussion of sin. No more. From this point forward, we deal with our guilt and our shame the gospel way. We allow the resurrection of Jesus Christ to convince us of forgiveness. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And so we're going to do that by looking at 1 Corinthians. Now, if you feel bad about yourself, you'll like the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, that's an interesting group of people that that letter's written to. The church in Corinth was an interesting group of people. I like to say that they weren't your grandmother's kind of church. Right? I mean, these people weren't the kind of people that grew up in good, God-fearing homes. They, most of them weren't, weren't good Jews. and uh, They weren't those kind of people. This congregation was made up of people that were probably recovering alcoholics, recovering drug addicts, recovering sexually immoral people, people that had been violent, people that had been thieves, people who had run off and abandoned their families. And so this congregation, we might say that it is the epitome of an inner city church. Corinth was a rough, wild pagan city that was full of all kinds of immorality that we really can't even wrap our mind around. And that's what these Christians had come out of. That's what they were recovering from. And they still had all the scars and all the brokenness and all the struggles that go along with it. So you can imagine that when Paul writes this letter to them, so much of what he addresses deals with the kinds of problems that you would expect in a congregation like that. And so he writes to them to address some of the issues that arise because of their past. But then when we get to chapter 15, we start talking about the resurrection because not only did they have all of the problems that went along with that type of a lifestyle that they were coming out of, but they also had the problem that there were people who crept into the church and were telling them there was no such thing as resurrection. That neither in the past, nor in the present, nor in the future do people rise from the dead. And so some of the Corinthian Christians were probably being convinced that there was no resurrection of the dead. And so Paul writes to address that issue. So look with me at chapter 15 and verse 1. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, that's good news, That I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. So Paul says, listen, I want to remind you about the good news. The good news is, here's what Jesus did. Here's who Jesus is. Here's what he's done for you. And this good news is the good news that is saving you, right? Of all that stuff you've done, of all that stuff you're ashamed of, of that, all that stuff that you are guilty of, the gospel of Jesus Christ is saving you from that. This is the good news by which you are being saved. If, if what? If you hold fast to it. If you stand firm in it. If you believe it. If you continue believing it. 
Because the implication is that if you stop believing it, if you accept this lie that resurrection isn't true, if you accept the lie that people haven't been resurrected, aren't resurrected, and won't be resurrected, then your belief will have been in, what's the word? Vain, right? You will have believed in vain. Listen, I don't know what anybody told you before, but you can see it right there in God's word, can't you? That if you waver, if you fall away, if you don't stand firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ, your initial belief will have been in vain. Paul says, you're being saved. You're being saved from the life that you had before. You're being saved from the the homosexuality that you were involved in before. You're being saved from the violence that you were involved in before. You're being saved from the lying that you were involved in before and the drunkenness that you were involved in before, the adultery and the idolatry. You're being saved from these things if you hold fast to the gospel, to what Jesus did for you. That's why your belief system is absolutely core to everything. Whether or not we truly believe and live like we believe, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, that He took on flesh, that He died for our sins, that He was buried in a tomb, and that He rose from the dead. And because these things are true, I am being saved from all of the things that make me feel guilty and ashamed All of the things that accuse me and say, Wes, you're not worthy. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. The gospel is saving me from these things. Now, look at verse 16. So Paul goes on to say, this is why you should believe in resurrection, that Jesus was raised. Here's why you should believe in that. But then he goes on to say, but hypothetically speaking, if the resurrection isn't true, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then let me tell you what that, what that means. Verse 16. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith, that's what we talked about last week, your faith is futile. It's a waste of time for you to trust God if the dead are not raised. But he says, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, that is, those who have died, have just perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And here's the most beautiful words, verse 20. But in fact, that's good, isn't it? But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You see the contrast, don't you? He's saying on the one hand, if there is no resurrection, then Jesus isn't raised. And if that's true, then you are still in your sins. All of those things that you've done, all of those sins you've committed, you're still guilty of those things. You're still wallowing in those things. You're still accountable for those things. Those things are still separating you from God. But... But, it's good, but, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And because Christ has been raised from the dead, what's the implication about my sin? The implication about my sin is that I'm not in my sin. Why? Because Christ is raised from the dead. Because I, because Christ is raised from the dead, I'm not guilty anymore. 
Because Christ is raised from the dead, I'm not enslaved to my sin anymore. Because Christ is raised from the dead, what the psalmist says about sin being taken away from us as far as the east is from the west, that's true for me. It's good, isn't it? As far as the east is, I don't know if that's east and west, but wherever it is, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has taken our sins from us, and we know that's true. Why? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So there's an interesting question, isn't it? Why? Why does resurrection mean forgiveness? Why does resurrection mean that I'm not in my sin anymore? We tend to think about the cross, Jesus' death, his blood, and our forgiveness, and rightfully so, right? That because he died, I'm forgiven. But why here does Paul tie resurrection to forgiveness? He says, if Jesus isn't raised, you're still guilty. You're still in your sins. But in fact, Christ has been raised, which means that you're not in your sins anymore. So I want to know, why? Why does his resurrection mean I can know and be confident of the fact that I'm not in my sin? Anymore. So let's look at the book of Romans before we close this morning. I know you're ready to go to lunch, but Romans, it's good stuff. That's what we're here for. It's good stuff. So Paul in the book of Romans, he starts in chapter one and he says, he says, listen, all you Gentiles, there were several Gentiles in the church in Rome. And he said, all you Gentiles, I mean, you're guilty of some pretty wicked stuff. You've done some pretty horrible things. I mean, you've suppressed knowledge of God and you became idolaters and you became sexually immoral and all of these horrible things that you've done and you're guilty before God. And the Jews in the church in Rome were like, that's right, Brother Paul, you preach it, right? I mean, come on now, that's good stuff because those Gentiles, they ought to be ashamed of themselves. They're guilty. They've done all of these things. And Paul turns the table on them, chapter 2. And he says, but no, 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 stop. You know better. In fact, in some ways you're worse because you had the law. You knew what God expected. You knew what you were supposed to do. And you still blew it. And you still sinned. You still did the same things they did. But you had the law and you should have known better. So he says in chapter 3, everybody, all of you are guilty. There's nobody that's righteous. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All of you need a Savior. And so he says that God did this. God put forth His Son, Jesus, as a Here's a big churchy word, propitiation. You know what that means? It means atoning sacrifice. You know what atonement is? Atonement means blood that covers over, that makes it as if it wasn't there, that erases it, that forgives it, that appeases. And so Paul says, God put forth His Son. Jesus offered up Himself as a blood sacrifice to provide atonement for His people. And then look at what He says in verse 22. So He starts talking about Abraham. He says, you see, it's the same with Abraham. Abraham wasn't justified before God because he kept the law. The law of Moses didn't even exist yet. It wouldn't come around for hundreds of years until after Abraham. So how was Abraham in a right relationship with God? Had Abraham sinned? Of course Abraham had sinned. How did he find acceptance in God's sight? Well, he says that the Bible says that his faith was counted to him as righteousness. 
Meaning that God considered Abraham to be righteous. God considered Abraham to be in a right relationship with him, not guilty. God considered Abraham not to be guilty. Why? Because Abraham had faith in God. Because Abraham trusted and believed in the promises of God and lived in a way that reflected that he believed in and trusted the promises of God. And so God counted it to him as righteousness. And it says in verse 23, But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses. He was offered as a sacrifice for us in our place to cover over our sins. He was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. Here's what I want us to remember this morning. The resurrection means acceptance. It's good. The resurrection means acceptance. The resurrection means that God accepted the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus says, you see all these people that are my sheep. You see, all these people that are my followers, you see, all these people that are my disciples, I'm going to offer myself as a blood sacrifice for them to atone for all of their sin, to cover over all of their sins so that all of their sins could be forgiven. And God said, yes, that's good. In fact, God and the Son, there was no disagreement about that. Everybody was on the same page. It was God's plan since the very beginning. And the resurrection is proof that God accepts the sacrifice of Jesus. And the good news for us is that by God accepting the sacrifice of Jesus, God accepts you. If you're in Christ Jesus, then God accepts you. On the basis of what? On the basis of law? No. On the basis that you're better than somebody else? No. On the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Romans 4 is all about, isn't it? That's what our baptism was all about, Romans chapter 6. Because when we are baptized into Jesus, we're identifying with what Jesus did here in his death and his burial and his resurrection. We're saying, I trust God that you accepted the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. And I trust that just as you raised Jesus from the dead as proof that you accepted his sacrifice, that you will raise me up from my sins, that you'll bring me back to life, that you'll help me to walk in newness of life, that you accept me. Paul says, Romans 4, that his resurrection means our justification. That means your righteousness. That means in Christ Jesus, he considers your faith to be righteousness. You are loved and accepted and forgiven by God and in a right relationship with God because God accepted the sacrifice of Jesus. If, if you accept, if you stand firm in, if you hold fast to. Isn't that what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 15 that we read in the beginning? That, that this only saves you if, if you're clothed with Christ in faith, if you put Him on in baptism, if you stand firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ, stand firm in your belief and your acceptance, your conviction that Jesus Christ offered Himself for your sins, 
And by that faith, through that sacrifice, you are accepted by God. Because that's our question, isn't it? How can I be accepted by God? How can I be loved by God? How can I be forgiven by God? Because he accepted the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf. His resurrection stands as proof that he accepted that sacrifice. And now you can know with confidence that if you are walking in Jesus and with Jesus and clothed in Jesus and trusting in Jesus, then you are accepted by God. So we can walk out of here this morning no more comparing ourselves to other people in order to find our acceptance with God. No more saying, God, at least I'm not like those people. At least I don't do that. I must be acceptable to you because I'm better than them. No more of that. And no more avoiding discussions about sin. No more avoiding discussions about repentance. No more avoiding discussions because they make us feel guilty or they bring us shame. Because from this point forward, we are going to find our justification, our sanctification, our forgiveness, our acceptance in Jesus Christ and Him alone. It's like the woman that was caught in adultery, isn't it? She was brought before Jesus and she had all kinds of accusers, just like you have accusers in your head that say, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. You call yourself a child of God. I can't believe you. I can't believe what you've done. And then when Jesus stepped in, then the accusers were all gone, weren't they? They all left. And when we hide ourselves in Christ, in faith, repenting of our sins, trusting in Jesus to save us, the accusers are all gone. So now we can live our lives knowing that we are justified, knowing that we are forgiven. If the church in Corinth could know that they were forgiven, that they were being saved from their sins, that the resurrection of Jesus meant their acceptance, that the resurrection of Jesus meant they weren't in sin anymore, then you and I can know the same thing. And we can walk out of here with confidence if we're really putting our trust in Jesus. But maybe there's somebody this morning that hasn't yet put their trust in Him, been buried with Him in baptism, Or maybe there's some of us that have been dealing with our guilt and our shame in the wrong way. And we need to make some changes this morning so that we find our acceptance and our forgiveness in Jesus and Him alone. If we can help you with that. There's a room in the back. The elders are going to meet with you after services if you want to meet with them. Or you can come forward. Be baptized into Jesus. Ask for prayers. Find encouragement because we're all in this together. There's not a person in this room who doesn't need a Savior. And the only way we're going to find salvation is by trusting in the death and the resurrection of Jesus for our acceptance. We can help you this morning. Come forward as we stand and sing.